Well, hello everyone. My name is Julio Cruz. I'm the executive pastor here at Trinity. And today I get this opportunity again to preach. Uh, so I'm always excited um, for that until I say yes, right? And then it's time to prepare. And I'm like, what was I thinking, right? But uh, if you've seen your watches, I know that we started a little bit late and we had some technical difficulties. So I promise we're not going to be late. All right. So I'm going to try to uh, go a little faster than anticipated. Um, it was interesting because last Last time I preached, my sermon was kind of short, and then this time I'm like, okay, my sermon has to be a little bit longer, and so I prepare a little bit longer. Well, now we need it short, okay? So, um, but um, uh, we started talking about about uh, what we would do during the month of July and the beginning of uh, the month of August, and we decided to start this new series called uh, Characters of the Bible. So for the next few weeks, um, again, July and the first couple of weeks in August, we're going to be talking about different characters of the Bible. Um, at first, we thought we would call this series Heroes of the Bible because many of the people that we're going to be learning about were, did heroic things and they did such amazing things. And as we look at them, we do see that uh, they had great character and they had great integrity and they had just uh, this great trust in God. But what we never want to miss is that the real hero in all of these stories that we're going to be talking about, the real hero is God. You know, I think that many times we can go and read these stories and think, oh, how amazing this person is and get so focused that we're like, I want to be like Joseph and I want to be and I want to be like Daniel and I want to be like this other person when God has called us to be like him. See, we're going to turn our attention this morning to the book of Daniel, but the real hero in this story is God. At the beginning of uh, the pandemic, uh, more than 10 years ago, I remember that uh, that feeling of uh, life was just out of control. You know, there was so much uncertainty. I remember the school was canceled, uh, parks were closed, we were asked not to leave our homes, and, and all of this stuff that was happening. And uh, if you're like me, I was like, I don't even know where this is, where this is taking me. So I remember just praying uh, fervently and asking God, can you show me in Scripture something that, I, that will give me some hope? Can you show me, uh, wh where do I go? Where do I read? And I remember having a conversation over the phone with uh, one of my friends, and he started talking about Daniel. And he just made a couple of comments about Daniel. And I remember after that call, getting my Bible and just reading the entire book of Daniel. And I found it to be refreshing. I found it to be encouraging. It was fun to see Daniel's integrity and his humility, but the thing that brought me most comfort was that in the midst of the uncertainty that Daniel experienced, no matter what was happening in his life, God was in control. See, and I, I look at what is going on in the world right now. I have a list here, a pandemic that has lasted way longer than any of us hoped for. And it seems like it goes away and then it comes back. Shootings in our schools and churches, a war in Ukraine, a struggling economy, talks about a recession being inevitable, a nation in a world that seems out of control, a world being shaken daily, plus any personal struggles we face pile up on top of that. This week, 
I went to a funeral for someone in his 20s. Maybe way, way too young. And then I came from the funeral and I received this call from one of the good friends in Kansas at a ministry that we served in. And she told me that this 17-year-old had passed away suddenly, unexpected. And I have this picture in my mind of this 7-year-old 10 years ago with a huge smile on her face. With the future ahead of her. With Christian parents that adore her. That her life was cut short. And I think of, you know, for some of you who are parents, I can't imagine what it's like to bury a, a child. Some of you have experienced that. But I just can't imagine. And I think like we would give anything in the world for us not to have to bury our own kids. See, when I think of all these events, I think of these uh, families that have been shaken, not only families, but friends and communities. And when I think of events like this, it is easy to believe that everything is out of control. But in our story today, we learned that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. In our story today, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to go to Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to be, for the most part, in chapter 1. You can read along with me. I think the text is going to be on the screen. But, um, but just to give you an idea, we, we don't have time to unpack the entire book of Daniel, but this is a fascinating book. I mean, this is stuff that movies are made of. There's so many cool stories here that I encourage you to read the entire book this week, and you will not be disappointed. This story, it takes place in the year 605 BC, and the fact that we know anything about what happened that year, by the way, I think it's amazing. Many believe that Daniel was only 15 years old when this story begins, just to give you an idea of what this will look like. Verse 1 in Daniel chapter 1 reads like this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You know, from secular history, we know that in 605 BC, by the way, there was a real king named Nebuchadnezzar who was brilliant, who lived in Babylon, what is now modern-day modern day Iraq. From Genesis 11:4, by the way, we learned that Babylon cared a lot about names. Genesis 11 says that this group was getting together and they say, we're going to build for ourselves a tower that is going to touch the heavens, a big city. I don't know what's with uh, big cities and big uh, buildings, by the way, but that's what they wanted to do. And then they say, so that we can make a name for ourselves. See, from the very beginning, Babylonia, they, Babylon, they cared a lot about names. And then we have Jerusalem, which if we go back to Genesis chapter 12, God gives this promise to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Then that becomes Israel and Jerusalem. So we have these two cities that are battling and we have the king Nebuchadnezzar that besieged the city of Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Did you notice that in the beginning of this verse? It says, And the Lord delivered 
Jehoiakim. See, uh, absolutely, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a great strategician. He, he, he knew how to do things. He knew how to plan. He knew how to strategize. But it is the Lord who handed Jehoiakim over to him. So, uh, so he conquers the city and he loots the temple. Verse 3 says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and get this one, the literature, the arts of the Babylonians. So he conquers the city, you know, he loots the temple, and then he captures the best and the brightest of Israel and puts him into his service. See, strategically, this was, this was smart from Nebuchadnezzar's part because he accumulated the brightest minds for the empire. This is, I think, why he did it. I don't know for sure, right? But when you take the best of the enemies, of the cities that are your enemies, you have a less chance, a chance to be attacked back. So you get the best out of them, and then, and then you have them serving your empire. I don't know if that's true. I'm just saying that's what I, that's what I would do. Pretty good strategy, in my opinion. Verse 5 says, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Did you get that? You know, they, they assigned them a, you know, a daily food and, and, and from the king's table. Um, they were to train, be trained for tra three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. You know, some of the things that I think about that, about this, is that, wouldn't it be nice, actually? Can you imagine if you're captured and you're taken to a different uh, nation, and all of a sudden, you can eat the food of the king, and you can learn, they pay for your education, and they treat you well, and they do all of these things. I would picture somebody who's exiled to be a slave in a mine, in a salt in a salt mine, but instead he's treated uh, somehow really, really well, right? Um, but what's, what's with the diet? You know what, why do you think the diet, right? I think that if you've participated in an endurance competition or, you know, if you know someone who has, you know how important diet is. You know, any serious training requires a special diet. I've participated in some uh, triathlons, and sometimes uh, I would get asked this question. Of all the disciplines, of the three disciplines, what's the hardest for you? Is it swimming? Or is it biking? Or is it, or is it running? And I go, there's a fourth discipline that nobody ever talks about. And, and that's the diet. That will break the greatest runner, it would break the greatest swimmer, and it will break the greatest biker. See, and I think these guys, they're going through some serious training, and any serious training needs a really good diet. Three years is what it takes for someone to be transformed in Babylon, by the way. Uh, in our context, maybe it's four years, right? College. Um, 
a few months ago, we were sitting around the table with our neighbor who's become like a grandmother to my three daughters. And we're sitting at the table. She has supper for us. And then she asked the, the girls this question. She's like, well, what do you guys want to be when you, when you grow up? And, and I, I know, my daughters, you know, that their dream is one day to own a restaurant. Why? I don't know. Right. <laughs> But as a father, I spend time with them, and I notice that they're really, uh, they're really particular about details. Some of you have kids like this. They, they don't forget stuff, you know, details. They're, good, they're really good readers, and they can debate. And I, my words came out and said, um, they should be lawyers. You know what I mean? That, that's what they're good at. Um, not a good comment. I get it, but I said it, right? They should be lawyers. Plus, I need somebody to keep me out of trouble as well. So... So I said that, and I just remember this facial expression of my friend. And she just kind of looked down a little bit, and she just nodded her head a little bit, and she said, it changes them. And she said, my two daughters are lawyers. And just something, something disappeared from them. They, they, I can't tell it. I can't say what it was, but it changed them. I don't know. If it's just lawyers, by the way, I, I'm not saying that. Please, please forgive me. I'm not insinuating that. But there's something that happens when you go through this rigorous training that, that if we're not careful, really, it, it could change a little bit about who we are. Nebuchadnezzar trained his captives for three years. As I say, when we go to college, we go for four years. We have a four-year training program. But for these guys, it takes three years to strip away their identities and get indoctrinated into the Babylonian culture. Verse 6, if you follow along, it says, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel, by the way, his name means God is my judge. And then Hananiah, his name means God has been gracious. And then Mishael, his name means who is what God is. And then Azariah, his name means God is my help. Did you capture that, by the way? Did you get that? Did you see that somebody could actually preach the gospel from the meaning of these names? See, God, God is the judge. But, but yes, he is also gracious. And he is our helper. He's our only He's the only God. But the, verse 7 says, The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. See, their names have to do with Babylonian gods. And remember, Babylonia cares a lot. Babylon, they care a lot about names. Daniel's life was shaken just watch his town, you know, be conquered, besieged. People he knew suffered and died during that season. He watched the temple of the God he serves get looted and destroyed. And then he's taken to a foreign and under oppressor. He's oppressed. Now somebody else uh, owns his schedule. Somebody else determines what he's going to learn. Uh, somebody else is telling him what to eat and, and his future. In Babylon, he would have given Babylonian clothes. He would have been given the Babylonian clothes to wear, had his head shaved. They also would have marked him as a slave somehow, probably piercing an ear. And they give him a new name. 
His world has been shaken. See, maybe you, you can relate to how he must feel. But Daniel has not lost sight of who is in control. See, verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved. Another way to say this is Daniel made up his mind. He drew a line in the sand. He said, enough is enough. That's as far as I'm going to go. That's as close as I'm going to get. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. By the way, defile is a pretty strong word. And sometimes it has some uh, religious implications. He says he chose not to defile him, to not defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officials for permit for permission not to defile himself this way. So at some point he says, "This is this is enough." From the rest of the story, we learn that Daniel has this conversation with the person who was in charge of him and says, listen, I, I, I'm not going to have this food. I just, I, I can't. And I actually, can, I can challenge you that I'm just going to eat these vegetables and these fruits and, uh, and I'm going to look better. Give me 10 days. Give me 10 days and that's going to happen. You're going to notice. By the way, raise your hand how many of you have done the Daniel fast because I have done it and I never got any compliments after 10 days, right? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying, like we can't miss that. The diet is not the point. God is working through this because there are greater implications that what they're putting in their mouth. So then, what is the point with the diet? What, what is the meaning? I mean, you know, whole books have been written about this topic. Some believe that because the world, the word defiled, that Daniel's intention is to keep kosher, right? But then we get hung up because in the Old Testament, they didn't restrict the wine. So, what, so if that was the case, he should have, you know, like, what's the point with the wine? Others believe that maybe eating from the king's table signified acceptance of his lordship. And it's almost like accepting, okay, you own me now and I'm submitting to you. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. But then he takes the vegetables. Right, so, so it's not like he's denying everything, so he's still taking part. And I think, you know, I, and I believe this is probably a little bit more accurate, but some believe that the real reason it is because if they are controlling everything from Daniel, at the end of the day, at the end of his journey, Babylon is going to take the credit. It's going to be about what they taught him. It's going to be about the name. It's going to be about his diet. But if he chooses not to, God is responsible for everything else that happens in this story. I tend to believe that. I tend to believe that it's not a magic thing that happened, but God is behind us. And he, then he can say, and by the way, later in the chapter, uh, these officials look at him and says, you look so much better than these other people who are eating meat. Again, in 10 days, there's this transformation because God is working in them. And this is the beginning of a journey that made a difference in the nation of Israel. And it all started right here with a simple decision to say, that's as far as I go. You can cut my hair. You can give me new sandals. You can teach me a new language. But that's as far as I'm going to go. And then verse 9 says, now God 
had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Did, did you notice that, that, that now God, see I love this phrase because now God, it sets the tone to the rest of the book. As God shines in the spotlight as the one who's in control. The phrase actually only appears here, but what I'll call the now God factor shows up throughout the rest of the book. I'll give you some examples. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he called all the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And he has the audacity to expect them not only to interpret the dream he had, but, to, but first they're required to tell him the dream and then interpret. And the guys logically say, hey, listen, what you're asking is impossible. There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. And then some events happen. And then somehow Daniel comes to the picture and he prays to God. And this is our now, our now God moment in chapter 2 of Daniel. Verse 27 says, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God who reveals mysteries. Skip to chapter 3, Daniel's buddies, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are better known by Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're about to be thrown into a blazing furnace for refusing to bow down and worship an image of, God, of gold that the king had created. And this is what they said in Daniel 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 17. It says, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God... Who we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God, of gold, you have set up. Then we go to chapter, chapter 5. Daniel interprets a writing on the wall for King Belshazzar. Daniel 5.18 says, Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And then the last one. Chapter 6, Daniel is thrown into a den of lions for not praying and bowing down to Darius. And Daniel 6.22 says, My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. See, each one of these examples is an example of a now God moment. God controlled the heart and mind of the king's official. He revealed impossible mysteries. He delivered three men from a fiery furnace. He put kings in power and also stripped them of their glory. He shut the mouths of lions. And Daniel himself puts it this way in Daniel chapter 2 verse 20. Listen to this. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. These are the reminders that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. 
see, you and I both know that our world is shaken and that our lives will sometimes be shaken. You know, um, and I think it's often easy to forget this now God factor. That, that we forget that God is in control. You know, for some of you uh, that grew up in the church, you hear this story and it's like, I've heard this before. Maybe you heard it better from somebody else. But if you're like me, I hear it and I feel this sense of, 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 of comfort that God is the one who's in control. But I go home and all of a sudden I'm hit by the realities of life. And all of a sudden the anxiety, the fear, the stress come, become real, right? So the question I asked, and I'm going to close with this, the question I ask, how, how do we live a life that is unshakable? You know, how do we live a life that, that keeps us strong? How do we live a life that is unshakable like the life that Daniel lived? Because our lives will be shaken. Our lives will be shaken by, by failure, by temptation, by change. So how do we live a life of, uh, uh, that is unshakable when we're hit by, for example, social pressure? You know, when we're pressured to conform to something we know is not right. Maybe it's a, it's a boss that is telling us to do something that is just a little bit dishonest. Not, not, not completely dishonest, but it's just a little bit dishonest. How do we live a life that is unshakable when we're tempted to lie, to hide our failures and our, and our weaknesses? You know, it doesn't feel good when people start looking inside of us. How do we live a life that is unshakable when we have the social pressure of other authority in our lives? Maybe that we don't respect. Maybe the authority of other friends. When we feel pressure to do something we know is not right and it violates our conscience. How do we live a life that is unshakable individually, but also a life that is unshakable as a church? You know, there are many lessons that I, we can grab from the book of Daniel, but... But one of the, two of the things that, I, that, that hit me personally is his integrity. You know, he drew the line and he said, this is, this is as far as I'm going to go. This is, this is I'm not, I'm not going to give in with anything else. And it takes a lot of courage. But we can hold on to integrity. I think another thing that I see from, from Daniel is, is his humility. You know, he text says at the beginning that he was, he was a noble. He, in other words, he... He's kind of like a, like a prince. He has everything. He's the best of it. I mean, he has rights. And not once in the book of Daniel, we find Daniel asking for his rights. As a matter of fact, there's one instance when the, the king tells him, listen, if you do this for me, I, I'm going to give you lots of money. And I'm going to put this chain of gold uh, around your neck. And, and he's like, listen, I, I, I don't care about that. You know, I have a greater purpose. To, to, to live with integrity, to live with humility. See, in spite of present appearance, God is, is, a, is in control. And I think that our part as church, as individuals, is very simple and it should be refreshing. It's integrity and it is humility. But I'll close with this in chapter 6 because this reveals the heart of this book. Chapter 6 chapter 6, King Darius uh, says these words after Daniel comes out of the lion's den. For he is the living God and he endures forever. 
His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know that many times the ways of the world seem better. They may seem more fun. They may seem easier. But I know from Scripture that your ways are much better. So I pray for us individually today and as a church. Would you give us a heart of people that walk with integrity, that walk with humility. And then we leave the rest to you. I realize this is easy to say, but I do pray that we would have the courage to believe it. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Every Sunday, we gather here for a communion, and in a moment, we're going to do that. But as we, as we get into communion, I just want to, I want to challenge you. Maybe you heard something this morning about the life of Daniel that kind of touched you differently this time. I just pray that you would, you would think about that while we're celebrating communion. You know, like, this is a special time for us because, because there's one king, Jesus, who actually walked with the greatest humility and he demonstrated the greatest humility that anybody could ever show. He didn't have to be here. He had all the power, but yet he chose to come to this earth so that you and me could have forgiveness. And we hold on to that promise. That's why we celebrate communion every, every Sunday. So I'm going to read here from, uh, Second Cor- from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your cups with you, I encourage you to get them out. Uh, second, 1 Corinthians 11 says in verse 33, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can take the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You can drink. Jesus, thank you so much for giving your life for us. We're so grateful for the love that you have for us. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 20 says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells 
with him. I hope you have a great week and thanks for being with us.